Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online wpvmfm.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio coming out of Taos, New Mexico thank you Walter Parks for our theme song walterparks.com for more on Walter's music Davine Dial thank you for managing WPVMFM we appreciate that and we appreciate you Robin Collier for managing KCEI in Taos if you would like to reach me Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. And I would like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a great place to, to go and a great place to start that improvement. And today I have a friend on, Lynn Rothman and Lynn and I have never met in person. Lynn is one of the members of our Imaginative Storm Saturday morning gathering, and I've gotten to know her by way of, of Zoom calls over a bit of a time now. And I love the way Lynn approaches storytelling. I know that Lynn has been in the, the world of entertainment, the world of arts, the world of writing, the world of of engaging with people for many years. So her passion is is people, her passion storytelling, her passion is is exploration. So Lynn Rothman, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. I know that you have been involved in the world of writing for a long time and that you feel like you have a lot to say, a lot of stories to tell. So I would like for you to start by telling us, telling me what you would like for us to know about the world that you inhabit? What are some things that magnetize your curiosity? When I very first thought of writing um, a memoir, it started with a memoir, and it was basically because my husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. It, it became a family disease, um, as a lot of these neurological illnesses do. And um, as my husband's got dementia, he started doing really very disturbing things. I wrote a journal every night about the day, about the terrible things that had happened in the day. As the journal progressed, I met somebody at a lunch, and she said, um, "How are you? How are you surviving this terrible situation you're in?" And I said, "Well, you know, I write a journal." And it was just because I've always loved writing. Um, and she said, oh, come to my writing group. And there are, so on a Saturday, and you know, people often say things like, uh, you know, I'll do this, I'll ring you, and they never do. And I thought it was just lunchtime chat, but that afternoon she rang me, she came and picked me up, took me to the writing group, and it all started from there. Um, and I did, that was, probably now 16 years ago, I suppose, oh no, more than that, 17 years ago. And what we did at that writing group was um, the person who was our mentor, only there were about probably 10 or 12 of us in his sitting room and his wife cooked us lunch and um, he would listen to our stories. 
and he would then comment. Nobody else could comment, only, only he could comment. Um, and they were quite brash comments. Um, and I didn't know how to write at the time. And I remember him being, I was terribly embarrassed when he would criticize, you know, and say, well, I remember saying something like I was walking into a hospital uh, to see my husband who was um, on, you know, he had all sorts of wires everywhere. I got to the door and I opened the door and I said, and I was so horrified to see my husband lying in bed. And so he said, stop there. That's not how you felt. What did you do? And, and I said, well, that was, I was horrified. And he said, no, you weren't horrified. He said, did your mouth dry up? Did your stomach start churning? You know, how did you feel? Did you lean against the doorpost? Did you uh, did you look out of the window? Did you see who else was in the room? And that was sort of the beginning of, of my being able to write about feelings. And I think, I think now um, with your 10 minute, what I've learned with, with you and Allegra is how to praise those feelings, you know, when I'm trying to write them. Your husband's Parkinson's disease, when you say that's the motivation for you to write the memoir, what kind of story or what kind of information would you like for us to understand about that experience you had with with his disease you said it became the family disease tell me more about what you mean by the family disease well in my case there were um i mean everybody's different but i've discovered now because i started a foundation for parkinson's disease when he, when he when he developed it um so i do know a little bit about the side effects of the medication and one of them uh, people can turn into gamblers is, is one thing. Sexual problems is another. Um, and it, it, one of the first things he did was to give all our money to his son because we wanted to live in America. And, and, and his son uh, proceeded to invest the money. He wasn't an investor. He was in the film industry, you know. And things started to go wrong, and and then we were having to sell things to. It was a financial problem, basically, and I had no idea about our finances. You know, I I always worked. I was a decorator, um, and I kept my own life going, and I had no idea he had a secretary. So you know, he he looked over the bank statements and and the wills and all that sort of thing. I had no idea about anything to do with finance. I'd never bought an airline ticket. I'd never looked at my health insurance or done any of that. He did everything, he had a secretary. And so I got on with my work and he did all that. And that's why I thought it was important for me to write how these things can affect a family because, um, or a, a woman who should, you know, for us to rely on men for absolutely everything, uh, which I did because I'm from that generation. You know, I'm 80, you know, and, and my generation, the man looked after you and he did all that stuff. And it's such a mistake. Um, and I know because we went through it. We, we really suffered as a family until he died, really, and trying to sort it all out. 
When did you start to understand that it was a mistake? And it is true. You said, well, I, I grew up in the generation where the man took care of everything. At what point did you start to realize, hey, this needs to be looked at closely. This needs some revision. I need to take my own flag and plant it in my own ground. I need my own sovereignty. When did that happen for you? 65-ish sort of age. Um, you know, I can't even add up. You know, I, I was... <laughs> It, and to look at a bank statement or or a spreadsheet or something, but what I did realize was that we were losing money and that things were becoming very difficult and credit cards were being canceled. You know, suddenly my, my beautiful garden was dying because um, we couldn't afford to water the garden. So the gardeners were only coming sort of once every three weeks or something. So my lawn went... And, and I thought that this is ridiculous. We were living a wonderful life. How can it have suddenly gone wrong so so quickly? So then I started to look at the bank statements. And then I started. And another thing was asking for advice, you know, asking people for help. I found that so difficult. And when I learned that you don't get help unless you ask for it, because nobody knows you're in pain. So I... I was very lucky. I was also in this 12-step program, so I had a sponsor, and I could ask for help, and I learned to ask for help. And I learned to read a bank statement a bit. Um, I realized things were going terribly wrong, um, and I had to take things into my own hands. And that's when I started really writing um, seriously, because for other people's sake, for other women who are in my situation. And I've discovered many, many people are. When you started to realize you had a deficit, which is I have no idea what's going on, did you teach yourself how to do it? Or did you reach out to other people and ask them to show you what to do? Because when you're managing finances, if you have no idea how that works, that's a bit of a learning curve. Did you handle that on your own or what? No, 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 no. I I, I asked friends who I trusted, who I'd come to trust, for advice. And I took the bank statements to them and I said, am I right? Is this, is this not correct? It seems as though we're losing loads of money. Where is it going to? Um, and they were a tremendous help. And what I didn't want was to have, I wanted to have my own team as opposed to my husband's team. So I started um, just getting my own people around me. Like, you know, my the bookkeeper, for instance, was paid by, by my stepson. And so I, I didn't quite trust what she was doing because she must have been going through the books and looking at all the numbers, but not telling me. So I got a separate person to come in and check all that. You know, so it was it was quite. Um, I, I suddenly came into my own and I had strength that I didn't know I had. When you came into your own around the finances and dealing with the business. 
how did that coming into your own transfer to other parts of your life, how did it give you strength in other areas? Because one, when one starts to realize, I have strength, other, other areas strengthen as well. Um, well, I, I got very, very involved in, in my husband's illness and Parkinson's and, and I got very involved. This is in England, um, in the foundation that I started, I, it was for a new operation called deep brain stimulation. And, um, it was a very experimental operation at the time. And. I had great faith in that it would be successful because I'd met somebody who had it in France, an Englishman, journalist, and he'd written about it. And I rang him at the Financial Times. He was the African editor. And I rang him and I said, you know, I've just read about this, this operation. He answered the telephone a month after the operation, and it's a brain operation. Um, he came to see me, and that's how it all started. And I realized that I knew how to do this. I started with a friend, um, an AIDS charity, an AIDS charity in England in 1985. So I learned a lot. She was American. I've learned a lot from her about fundraising. And they needed funding for the operation. So during the time of funding, I had to learn about it. Um, and I realized that uh, I went to every lecture I read everything I could about the operation and about Parkinson's and about neurological disorders and movement disorders. And, um, and I studied it and I realized I had, I, I wasn't such a moron about these sort of things and I could actually learn and, and help people. Could you help us right now understand the basis of Parkinson's? I have a dear friend who I've known since I was a lad, my early 20s, he now has Parkinson's, and I have other friends who have it as well. I think I know how it works. Can you help us understand the basis of what Parkinson's is about and, and why it's such a powerful disease that has such an impact on people? I think... First of all, when you're diagnosed, if you don't know anything about Parkinson's, um, it's terrifying. But so much research is being done now. I, I mean, I know someone in America who's doing something absolutely miraculous. This particular operation, deep brain stimulation, is is a miracle. It changes people's lives. I don't. There are so many reasons. I mean, I wanted to know. Why, for instance, in the beginning, how can you diagnose it? Why? What are the symptoms? In my husband, in most case, the symptoms were shuffling. He shuffled, and I could feel when I held his hand, I could feel the tremor in his hand. He didn't actually have dyskinesia. You know, he had frozen Parkinson's. And also, handwriting gets very little. Your handwriting decreases. So I learned, you know, how to help people with that. You know, you press very hard and write very slowly on the page. And I think it's terrifying to know that it's a chronic illness and you don't die of Parkinson's. You die of some related, something like pneumonia or something related to it. And, you know, my husband was 92 when he died. 
I mean, there was 22 years between us. So he had it for a very, very long time. And it was very slow. You can you can go on if you've had deep brain stimulation, for instance. I know people who went back to work and and are still surviving because you can take out the electrode. They put an electrode into your brain, uh, into your head and stimulate the cells. And, and then you have a stimulator, like a, 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 a remote control, which is then placed under anesthetic, underneath your collarbone. So you can control the dyskinesia and the symptoms of the Parkinson's, and you can be turned on and turned off. It's battery operated, it usually lasts five to seven years. If there's a cure, you can take out, they can take out the electrode and take away the stimulator. So none of the cells have been burned away, which was in the old days, they would burn the cells, which never grow again. What age range does Parkinson's disease usually affect? I know people who are older having it. What about younger people? What's the lowest age range that it can happen? And why does it happen? Or is it a mystery? It's it's sort of a mystery, but it can happen young. They call it young onset Parkinson's, and it can happen in your thirties, forties. Michael J. Fox, for instance, he was he was young when he was diagnosed, and he's done such amazing work. I mean, his he's a phenomenon, really. Now, Michael J. Fox seems to really have worn that disease well in terms of the way he's interacted with the world. Do you know if he has used the deep brain stimulation? No, I hear that it, it was such early days. The, the deep brain stimulation was invented in France by two professors called Professor Benabid and Professor Polak. So they were in Grenoble. And I am told that he contacted them. But as it was such early days, he chose to do another operation and not deep brain stimulation because it was so experimental at the time. But the person who became my friend, who I read about, because he wrote an article in the Financial Times about his operation, funded by the Financial Times in Grenoble, he took the chance because he was so disconnected. And so, uh, I mean, his life was in ruins, in tatters. And he so he decided to have the operation anyway. The BBC also funded half the operation, and they filmed the whole his whole operation. And he was quite funny about it, actually, because one of the things he, he said to me, he said, would you believe it? It was in France and it was a 14 hour operation and I was awake the whole time. And he said, did they stop for lunch? No, they left me there with the electrodes in my, in my head while they all went off for lunch. Deep brain stimulation. How long so, so has it I, been in play I, now? 20 years, maybe. So now is it used regularly? Is deep brain stimulation used regularly now? And that's oh, yes. If you're if you're a candidate. If you're a candidate. Yeah. On our team in London, you know, to see whether you're a candidate. My husband was not a candidate because he'd had two brain operations from hits on his head previously. And so there was too much scar tissue to get to accurately put in the electrode. You you mentioned earlier about the gambling. I've never heard that before. What kind of gambling happens when you oh. have Parkinson's? 
Well, I I don't know exactly, but with my husband, it was, uh, I mean, he would want to invest in this and invest in that. And it wasn't gambling in Las Vegas, but a lot of people, I'm told, I mean, this is hearsay, they actually do start, you know, doing Las Vegas type, you know, casino gambling and gambling with large amounts of money and um, bankrupting families and that sort of thing. Flirtatious too, that the he was terribly flirtatious. That's part of it as well. And your husband was able to function for a, a, quite a while, you say. In in the very beginning, he functioned quite well. Um, he still went to the office. Um, and I wanted him to have... We actually, subsequently, we, we bought an office in London next door to us. It was an, an apartment next door to us where we moved his office so that he felt that he was actually going out and going into an office. But we always lived between London and Los Angeles. Well, actually, we lived between London and New York. And then it became too difficult when he was wheelchair bound. He had an ankle fusion and he was in a wheelchair. And it was really difficult, unless you're a billionaire, to have a limo to drive you. So we we moved to Los Angeles, uh, where we had a house. And it was lovely for him because we had a garden and he had different places to eat and People used to come and see him, his old friends. He had a, a lovely life and until the, the dementia started taking over. And then he was diagnosed with, with um, Alzheimer's as well. So that was a double whammy. It was a difficult times. It was a long time um, and very slow. But he did manage to function quite well um, for probably 12, 14 years. So many people have health problems I and mean, we we all are eventually going to have health problems and we will all certainly die when you were engaging in this process with your husband how did you find the strength to keep on going did you and what did you gain and what did you lose in the process and how do you feel about all of it now you're free you're 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 solo grounded, working on your, your work. How did that work for you? I was really lucky, and I'm blowing my own anonymity because it's an anonymous program, but I I was in AA from 1985. So I had that 12-step program behind me, and the, the people who I'd met, and we were talking about sharing, you know, earlier. And and I learned to share in the meetings. I didn't say a word for, for, for years, but then I learned to share. I learned to ask for help. And instead of burdening my friends with, oh, poor me, the victim, I was able to do it at an AA meeting, which was absolutely wonderful, you know. And everybody was so supportive and so kind. And I said, without... I don't know how I would have really done it. And then when I got into the writing group, that helped me enormously, you know, to be able to exercise it by writing what was going on. And I wrote it in great detail, which is why editing, I mean, I've got thousands of pages. <laughs> editing is so important for me because I was writing it as it was happening every day. And as he was dying, I've, I've got all that written um, in great detail. And I think that writing does exercise 
pain and suffering. And, and I think that's what the writing really got me through. And I learned it. In AA, you have what's called a fourth step, and you write your life story. What part did I play in my in my downfall? And so that was a great help to me, that, that fourth step. A lot of people I talk to on this show identify themselves as writers, and they generate poetry, they write books, they write this, they write that. You've written a lot. You said, I have thousands of pages. How do you see yourself as a writer, or do you even identify yourself as a writer? Or are you just a person who writes and continues to write and explores the world through writing? How does that work for you? I always find it difficult. You know, on those forms, and it says profession, um, and, I, and I jokingly said at my writing group, I used to say, you know, at what stage do you say a writer? I can't possibly say a writer. And so I, I remember my mentor, he said, he said to me, but do you write? And I said, yes, all the time. And he said, in that case, you're a writer. So that made it sort of a little bit easier for me. I don't identify as a, as a writer, but I write. I mean, I do. I write every day. I love writing. It's become such a big part of my life. Um, so I suppose I'm a writer. It's interesting because I don't identify myself as a writer either. I will tell you that I write. Oh, come on, you are. Right. Well, I, I, but the, point, the point isn't whether I am or whether I'm not. The, I, the question here is, how do we see ourselves? And I see myself as a person who writes. And yeah, I me. like the idea of seeing myself as that more than I like the idea of identifying myself as I am a writer. Because I do so many other things. Me I'm, too. I'm not able to say, well, this is my, I'm going to claim this category. The, the category of writer is a category I visit. Like I would go to the, the music group and play music with friends. So I would be a musician while I'm maybe playing my music. But when I leave, I'm not, I'm not the musician anymore. And I love the freedom of thinking like that rather than a more narrow uh, category. Now, I do know people, and I know you been in the entertainment world and you've encountered lots and lots of people that do lots and lots of things. And I do know people who write and they do it for a living and they'll say, I am a writer. I do it for a living. And yet even those people sometimes shrug their shoulders and say, well, yeah, but I'm so much more. And that so much more part is what's interesting for me rather than the category. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I feel, yes, you've clarified it for me. That's exactly how I feel. Because I do do so much more than that. You know, it's a full life. Thank goodness it's a full life. And it's important to inventory a bit and say, okay, wait a second. Let's pause for a moment and take an inventory of the so much more. And within that inventory looking at all of the abundance that we have been able to create in our lives, it floats the boat in a really strong way for me to think of it like that. I come from a very English family, and, and I was made to be a debutante when I was 17 in England. And it's all so old-fashioned now, you can't even believe it. 
But anyway, I was. And I remember there was something being written about my husband, and they described me. They said, they said, ex-debutante. And I thought, I've been a decorator for so long, and I've been published, and, and, and they call me an ex-debutante. I was so upset. <laughs> the debutante was the 17-year-old girl trying to figure out what to do next. So it could hardly be an ex, I don't suppose. So when you tell the stories that you want to tell in your writing, what are some of the stories you tell that you would like for us to hear? Can you tell us a personal story right now, something that is interesting for you, something simple, not not complicated? I, I, I'm trying to work out how I describe a 37-year marriage to my husband when we had such a fascinating life and we did so many interesting things. And I'm trying to work out what I want to tell. Do I do it in a chapter? Do I do it in separate stories? I think I, I do over-describe things maybe. Um, but one of the things was going to China because my husband owned Chaplin films and um, they were an easy, it was easy for the Chinese after the Cultural Revolution, right afterwards, when they had no film, no books, no nothing um, to relate to Chaplin. So we were invited by the government in 1977 to go. And that was, and I wrote every day, I wrote a long journal about that time in China. And then we went the following year when they signed the deal for the films and we took two of our children, um, uh, of each 14. I had a 14 year old and my husband from a previous marriage had a 14 year old and we went to China. And and I wrote about that in, in detail. It was such an extraordinary trip to see the first one when we arrived, they were still in their Mao jackets with their little red books, and they, they'd they been indoctrinated at that time. And you, it, everything was done through a translator. Even though the Minister of Culture spoke English, we were asked to speak, to speak through our interpreter. And so I wrote about all that. And, and it was just, and the next time when we went only a year later, less than a year later with the children, there were jeans and t-shirts and uh, they 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 integrated i mean they they the change was so quick it was hard to to see how it had happened so quickly how they became westernized so quickly so that was something that i was one incident in my life that i'd like to write about how do you think that happened what caused that change so fast I suppose um, media, maybe, and and tourists, because when we went, Americans weren't allowed in, and my husband was Canadian, so he could. He, that's how they. That's how they uh, could invite us because he was Canadian. And you went there to um, make a film, or I, you went there to do research, or what was the purpose of the trip? Oh, they wanted to buy the library. They wanted to buy the Charlie Chaplin Library. Um, all the films to show them in China. So that was, so they took us everywhere. I mean, we they took us on a trip all over China and, and everywhere that they wanted us to see, of course, nowhere they didn't want us to see. 
he bought the library from Charlie, 50-50 with the family. And he brought Charlie back to America. He got him his knighthood in England. He uh, he distributed him all over the world. Funnily enough, Tokyo, the Japanese were his best market. It was extraordinary. So we spent some time in Japan and and it was all it was very exciting times. Um and, and, and of course bringing Charlie back to America and he, he got him his uh, lifetime achievement award and it was those were wonderful days. In those days, all of that happened a long time ago. Yeah. How do you th- how would you like to take th- that experience and the other experiences you've had? And what would you like for people to know now about that time? And how do you think people can use that information that you have in a more in to enhance their modern view of the world? Do you mean when I do a rewrite of what I wrote and felt back then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how I would, how I now in present day feel about it. Right. I think I'd have to re-read what I wrote back then um, to be able to answer your question. Because I I can't think of, of having done it any differently. I mean, I can still feel that excitement of going to China for the first time and the excitement and the that is different now because I frankly don't want to travel anymore. I've just been to London and and the airport was a nightmare. Uh, my ticket coming, my seat coming back was cancelled. And, and, you know, it was all the excitement of travel nowadays is not what it was back then. I used to think about my packing weeks before, you know, what am I going to take and and how, and there was no problem about taking, you know, the luggage getting lost. It was always fine. You could check in whatever you liked. Another thing that I like to write about and I feel differently about now was um, going to the only film festival in Manila um, and staying in the Malacanang Palace with the Marcuses. I mean, uh, had I known then what I know about her now, I don't know whether I would have wanted to stay with her in her American Young Palace and have her take me around her shoe collection and her everything and the hobnob in her nightclub. I think I've grown a lot since then, and I realized how terrible that time was. I mean, it was a we didn't know at the time what was really going on. Thing, the reason I'm interested in in the Philippines, Manila, is because I've been there a lot over the last few years, and I've spent a lot of time there. And I do know that the uh, Amelda Marcos and and Ferdinand Marcos started out really wanting to make the Philippines better, and then they ended up becoming really, really corrupt. And so, when you were there, you must have been kind of in the middle of their reign not aware of their corruption. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the corruption. I mean, one of the horrors that I found out afterwards through a journalist friend of mine who was there covering the film festival, she took us the first night we arrived. We arrived in the afternoon. She didn't even give me time to change. She got a group of us who was staying with her, four of us, 
and took us to see the film palace, which she called her film palace. We drove up this long drive and there were trees on the road as we drove up to the film palace, unplanted. And, and then there was this huge, what was going to be, she said, there's going to be a fountain there. And the, the festival was opening the following day. And I said, but Madame Marcus, how, how can you, I mean, how can it open? You know, the trees aren't planted. And she said, oh, um, these, these are all my people. They love me. They're going to work all night and they'll get it done for me. And she stopped this little minibus thing. And she got out and was embracing these poor, thin workers who were going to work all night. And then I discovered, um, oh, when I got back to England from my journalist friend, that the film palace was such a rush job. It went up floor after floor and a cement mixer fell and the cement went down the building and it took with it a lot of the workers who were on lower floors and they were all they all died you know they were killed and she didn't stop that she hushed it all up didn't stop the building works and the the workers are still buried in that film palace it was such a horror story i could i i couldn't believe anyone could be so Anyway, they now that the Filipinos, I don't know whether you've ever heard that, they they feel it's haunted. Um, and people go and pray outside because the bodies are still there. I have actually heard that story. And I have talked to people who have prayed outside that place now that I think about it. Manila is quite a thriving place right now 20 million people everybody's really really working hard although i heard today from tish whom i've been with for 18 years she lives in manila so i go there a lot so i'm quite connected to the place the temperature is hot now like it is in the other parts of the world so it's a, a really dynamic place and yet the the marcos's regime did take a lot now junior ferdinand junior bonbon marcos is now president marcos is now the junior he's there and some people say he's doing okay i don't know i haven't i don't know for sure i'm not a journalist well i met him several times when you know when we were there the son yeah he was he was young then and the daughter imi i think she was called imi the daughter yeah they were very nice very polite very you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so who who knows what it's like. So that story is a very powerful story. And I, I get the sense that your confusion rises from the abundance you have. I have so many stories to tell. How in the world will I tell them all? And I don't I I, I need five lifetimes to tell these stories. Is that where you're coming from now? Uh Yes, that's exactly where I'm coming from. I have enormous guilt having experienced this Marcos situation. I don't know whether I should rewrite that. I felt walking into my bedroom at the Malakinyan Palace. She had clothes. She'd had the measurements she got from our office in London. I had clothes in a cupboard in case I lost my luggage. Evening dresses that she gave me. I've got photographs of my dressing table with makeup and scent and 
body lotion and everything. I mean, you, you can't imagine the spoiling and the fruit and the, I mean, I, anyway, luckily I've got all the photographs. So where does the enormous guilt come from? That I accepted all this from somebody who I have no respect for at all lately. I mean, since I've found out everything. So maybe that's a separate chapter. You were saying, what would I rewrite in today's terms? And that's one chapter. That's why I told you that's one chapter that I probably would rewrite with my thoughts today on how I felt about that trip. I would be really curious to read an exploration from you about the guilt, where it came from, why it was there, and how you are using it today. Have you absolved yourself of the guilt? Do you feel a weight? Uh, and if you haven't absolved yourself from the guilt, how would you do that? No, I, I absolved from the guilt. I mean, it, it, we were there on business, you know, it was... The, the Chaplin films were opening the festival. You know, it was all, it was business. What I'd like to write is, had I known about Imelda's indulgences before I went, would I have, would I have accepted her generosity and everything? I wonder, it was so tempting. Would I stand by my principles? And Well, that's a powerful question, Lynn. And it's a question that we all can ask ourselves. I would like to say I would do this, 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 and this based on my core beliefs. But when faced with the circumstances, would I? Maybe yeah. we'll never know. But it's really interesting to test yeah. yourself to see if you would or you wouldn't. I don't know. Is it called greed? I don't know. Maybe not greed. Because it's not something you can take, take, take. Like greed is like, I want more and I want more and I want oh, more. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking of, but there might be a greedy aspect about it. There might be a greed for the experience of being surrounded by that power, the glamour, the seeming vitality of the situation. And yet it's false in a way because it's once you leave, you have the memories. Was it satisfying? Did your soul come away feeling nourished? Maybe it didn't. Maybe it did. I don't know. It was so many years ago. I have to really go back and try and remember how I felt. I remember the excitement. It was all so glamorous. The reason I'm curious about, about it is because Tish Vallez's grandfather and uh, Ferdinand Marcos were in the war together, and they were they marched the death march, the Bataan death march. They lived through it, and they knew each other. And in fact, her grandfather was part of the wedding party when Imelda and Ferdinand got married. So I'm a little familiar with it all. So anyway, in conclusion, as we wind this up, what are some of the things that you are looking forward to? What are you what are you planning on in the next year or so? Well, I have a wonderful new man in my life, and he has a house uh, near Palm Springs in Rancho Mirage, which I've been fortunate enough to be able to decorate because I'm such a frustrated decorator still. Um, 
And so that's been a, a, a huge joy. There are other things I want to do, like the garden and things like that. So I'm very excited about that. And also writing. I just want to get I want to get my memoir in order. Also, I have my granddaughters at Oxford. Um, she's just done a year in Japan. She's studying Japanese. And she's coming to stay with me on her way back to Oxford from, from Tokyo, or she, Osaka, actually. Lots of art exhibitions. Art is my big passion, as well as writing. Art is my big passion. There are so many art exhibits, and, and I'd like to go with, with the museum to do some trips with, with museums, looking at art. So all these things are in the pipeline, depending on good health. Well, Lynn, thank you for taking the time to be on this show. And I, I really do appreciate it so much. And I'm glad to know you. And one day, maybe we'll meet in person and have time to break sure. bread together. Well, we're, actually, that's one of the plans of the future is to come is to come back to to um, to Santa Fe because I didn't meet you last time. I came to see Allegra, and uh, you weren't there. We'll be back. We will do it. <laughs> we'll make a plan. So thanks, thank thank you so much okay. for being on Twice Five Miles, Lynn. I appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. I'm very flattered. And there you go, my friends, my conversation with Lynn Rothman. I enjoyed talking to Lynn. People often ask me why I invite somebody to come on Twice Five Miles Radio. And the reason is really simple. When I meet somebody who has some kind of story to tell, somebody who likes to talk, like Lynn, for example, I invite them on the show. It's really compelling. I went to the WPVMFM board meeting a couple of weeks ago when I was in Asheville. At the meeting, Devine Dial, who manages WPVMFM and is also the director of the nonprofit that holds the license for WPVMFM, mentioned to me that I had been on the air every week for six and a half years, going on seven years. It seems like just yesterday when I started interviewing people. And I probably have 250 people now that I've interviewed, like Lynn. I've done one show a week for all this time, and it really does mount up. And of course, you have the numbers. I probably have at least 250, 265 people I've interviewed. I could count them for you, but you get the idea. What I have learned in the course of the seven years is, one, how to tell when somebody would be interested in doing a radio interview with me. And the second thing I've learned is how to listen how to craft questions from what people are saying to me, how to pay attention to what is being said, and how to sense what the person would like to say after they finish what they're saying. And I've also learned that it's possible to shift the listening skills that I've learned from people to environments as well. It's really about awareness. Listening is only one part of it. Now, right now, I am recording this in an apartment. I am in Paris, in the 17th arrondissement. I'm here to visit my friend John Van Hasselt and to visit some other friends as well and to do a workshop. And I'm noticing things here. Paris is a romantic city. That is true. I was over in the 6th, which is the 
the Latin Quarter, where the Bohemians once were, and I imagine there are some there now. I was there this afternoon, and I walked across the river and caught the subway or the metro and came straight to the other end of Paris, to the to the western end of Paris, where I'm renting an apartment for the week with Tish Valles, who came this morning from Manila to meet me. So Manila, the Marcoses, the journey that Lynn took to Manila. Now Tish comes from Manila. So Manila is a town. Paris is a town. Asheville is a town. And Taos is a town. It's a privilege to be in these places. As I listen to this environment this afternoon, I hear the afternoon radios playing. Maybe from another apartment across the street, or maybe from a car below, or maybe somebody walking by. Who knows? But I hear some music. I hear traffic moving on the street. I hear some pounding. Somebody's pounding outside. The room is relatively quiet. It's an oldish room. Most of the places that exist here at Paris, they're old. Been here for ages, and people have modernized them. So... It's wonderful just sitting, letting the air come in, mid-September, September the 13th, late afternoon, around 6.30 p.m., and I'm listening to my environment. I'm listening to myself speak to you. I'm listening to the way my interior speaks to me. So, I learned how to do greater listening during all these times I've spent with people in interviews talking to me, occasionally I'll get someone who sticks right to the story. Can't get them off the rock. They will stick to their story. And you could tell, or I could tell, and you could too, they've told this story over and over and over again. Now take Lynn, for example. Lynn's told her stories many times. When you listen to Lynn tell her story, talk about her life, talk about the things she did, talk about going to Manila, talk about those people who are still buried under all that concrete. And that story is true. I took a tour of that building once. Carlos Celdran gave the tour. And it was a great tour because he would talk a little bit and he would say, walk this way. And then we would follow him around. And he told the story of how the concrete fell and collapsed and the people got buried and the theater went up anyway. It was a tragic story. We remember tragic stories. So Manila is there in my life. Paris is in my life. And you know, I've been coming here since 1985. And I've been visiting my buddy John Van Hassel. And John and I are going to do some furniture moving. He's going to take some stuff to storage next week. And after my workshop, I'm going to help him take some stuff to storage. He is rearranging things. So I'm going to be a mover in Paris. Not much romantic about it. I'm hoping the weather will be cool so things will be easy and we won't get too hot. Moving the stuff around town. I'm almost to the end of the show, and so what I would like to do is a little improvisational poem about where I am right now. And it's also about listening to my interior. So I'm going to offer you something. It's, it doesn't exist until now. I move slightly to the left, lean into 
a breeze. Window open, noises bouncing from the walls. At last, peace on the curve between yellow and the expression of water. You and I exist in the eyes that surround us like fish floating in the sky. Tonight, without stars, I will find my way to nowhere, and in that place I will settle like silk settles on somebody's face at the end of a day. I once was born in a moment that vanished fast like the flash of the night on top of the sky that fell when the world became its circle. A moment surrounding a moment in the middle of a time like right now on this couch looking out the window evening passing like the splash on a sheer curtain when the candles come on and that was a little improv to sorbet the closing time we have together i like to do those improvs and i call them improvisational poems might not be improvisational as much as listening poems. I just sit and wait for a thought to appear. It's different than meditation. When you sit in meditation, you are supposed to have no thoughts. And yet when you're in meditation, thoughts appear. So this is, in a sense, a meditation in hopes of appearing thoughts. And guess what? They always do. And instead of me trying to think of something important to say, I just listen to whatever's there and say it. And then after that, I can transcribe it and then take a look at it. Maybe, maybe something will be there, something interesting that will catch your, catch your eye, catch your ear, make you think, hmm, I could develop this into a piece of writing or not. Does it matter? It probably does. What matters is if you want to develop it, develop it. If you want to move on and come back the next day and do another one, perfectly all right. It's just fun to let that happen, to listen, to listen to those beats. And it's also been fun having you on the show. I couldn't create these shows without listeners, so thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, and I always air this show first on WPVMLP Asheville. 103.7, and I stream it online, wpvmfm.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. Thank you, Robin Collier, for managing KCEI and Taos, Cultural Energy Radio. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, and you can always reach out to me, and I would love to hear from you. Please send me an email sometime. I'd like to know what your news is. My address is nave at jamesnave.com. Send your stories. Love to hear them. So thank you ever so much, like I said, for tuning in. And I, one other thing before I go, uh, we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your um, chops, your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to do that. So 
there you go. That's about it for now. Sitting here on a bed in Paris, France, I bid you a fond farewell and hope you come back again sometime soon. Till then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.